I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. I'm Justine Paradise. And I'm Felix Poon. And this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Today we're opening up some listener mail and answering your questions as part of our regular segment, The Outside In Box. Do you write a lot of letters, Felix? I've started to do that more recently. You know, I I used to have a pen pal when I was a kid. You did? Yeah. It all started from, like, I think my, me and my family went to Disney World, and we got some postcards. Mm-hmm. My, my parents were like, yeah, you just write a message, and you send it to a friend. I was like, oh, interesting. Fine. I'll do that. <laughs> Sent it to a friend back at home. And then uh, my brother did the same thing. I think my sister did the same thing. We each picked friends. None of their friends wrote them back, but mine did. Ah. (laughs) Um, And then we just kept writing letters back and forth. Did you live in the same town? No, we were probably about two hours away from each other on opposite ends of the state of Massachusetts. And this started, I want to say I was like in elementary school and it went on through middle school, went on through high school. Do you want to know how it ended? Um, I really do. (laughs) This is like a cliffhanger. (laughs) It ended with the advent of email. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, did you switch to email or did you just stop communicating? We were like, oh, there's this new email thing. Let's give it a try. And and, And she was like, okay. And then I think we each wrote one email to each other, and then we just stopped responding, and, and that's it. <laughs> uh, this, so this is like email supposed to make communication easier, but it's an example of it actually ending communication. 
Yeah, yeah. It's like so easy. It's like, oh, I can get to that. No problem. I'll get to that sometime. At, yeah. at some point. But it, then it just never happened. <laughs> Oh, well, we actually got a, an email from a listener who is probably around the same age that you were at the time, 11 years old. Oh. Um, it was an email from a person named Callum. And unlike with my pen pal situation from my childhood, uh, we're not ignoring Callum's email. <laughs> and they wrote, hello, I'm an 11 year old that loves your podcast so much. And I would like to say your podcast is my favorite to listen to. Oh, that's so sweet. When I first heard your podcast, I thought to myself, what is this podcast? They're not talking about the subject. They're just goofing off. Now I say to myself, oh, I can't wait for more outside in. Let me know if you need any help on topic ideas. Oh, yeah. We love topic ideas. Yes, please. And uh, Callum continues. Also, I live in Hollis, New Hampshire, and I'm sort of an environmentalist. But my sisters, of which I have three, always leave the lights on. Also, I tried to convince my dad to get solar panels, but he said they were too expensive. Oh. Your friend Callum. <laughs> Boo to leaving the lights on. I know. Get those sisters to turn them off. <laughs> Taylor Quimby, our co-producer, wrote back to him and he said, you know, a, a really great thing to do is to sometimes to is to try to live by example. So, yeah. So that's that's Taylor's advice to Callum's email. Yeah. Another way we hear from listeners is through reviews. Reviews actually really help us get discovered. So if you are so inclined to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, it would really help us out. And it doesn't have to be like a big, long thing. It can just be something simple like so hot right now or something like that, you know. So hot right now. What What do we mean? <laughs> is that a reference oh, you, to you something? Don't know this joke? <laughs> The joke no. is uh, our former host, Sam Evans-Brown, this was when the show was just starting out. Um, there were just like four or five reviews. And so Sam wrote a review giving himself or the podcast five stars. And it just said so hot right now. And it was just <laughs> it was like from Sammy B. It was just so obviously. <laughs> and so like listeners sort of troll it sometimes yeah. by saying still so hot right now. Or yeah, something. but that but that's OK. He was being very transparent. He wasn't trying to to the rig true. the system. So you can yeah t- take a cue take a cue from Seb Evans Brown. Mm. I promise that we don't like t- have subterfuges and alternative identities <laughs> giving listener no. reviews uh, on our podcast. They're all organic. Yeah. Um, but the other kind of way that we hear from listeners is through our regular segment, the outside inbox. We have four listener questions that we're going to get answer in today's show, and we better get to it. Enough goofing off. Yeah. Back to the subject. <laughs> So what, what do we have today? So, yeah, we've got a few topics today. We are answering a timely question about home heating systems and what's best for the climate. We're talking about wildfire smoke and bird migration. And we are settling an old family debate. Ooh, intriguing. <laughs> so first up, Felix, you took on the question about um, energy efficiency in the home and you spoke to producer Jessica Hunt. That's right. And let's bring Jessica in now. Hi, Jessica. Hi, good to be here. And this question came to us from Brian in Canaan, New Hampshire. As a household gets ready to transition from one heat source to the next heat source to replace, for instance, an aging furnace, what's the best uh, method to uh, make our carbon footprint smaller? Thanks very much. And to answer this question, I spoke to someone who I thought seemed pretty promising given his nickname. He's known as Nate the House Whisperer. Everyone needs a house whisperer. (laughs) And so when I played Brian's message for him, Nate the House Whisperer had an answer, and it was written on his T-shirt. I just had these printed, uh, but they say hashtag heat pump curious. 
<laughs> because we're getting a lot of people now that are curious about heat pumps. So that's the answer, heat pumps? Yeah, according to the experts I spoke to, with some caveats, of course, uh, but we'll get to those. First, here's Nate explaining how a heat pump works. So picture a heat pump like a little gnome with a bucket, and he uses that bucket to pick up bits of heat. And so he pulls heat from the cold air outside, brings it inside, and dumps it. And he just keeps doing that, and he uses electricity to keep up his strength. Gnomes. No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But in all seriousness, this metaphor of the gnome with a bucket is just Nate's way of saying that a heat pump moves heat. It doesn't create heat like a gas or oil furnace. So that must be why it's a climate solution, right? Heat pumps don't burn fossil fuels. Right. So it does run on electricity, but the amount of electricity it uses is much less than traditional electric heating options like electric baseboards and space heaters. But that electricity still comes from the grid, though, which is still burning coal and gas at power plants. Right. But the shift to renewable energy is already happening on the grid. So that's why a lot of environmentalists are pushing to electrify everything from heat pumps to electric cars. Okay, so I appreciate the gnome metaphor, but how does a heat pump actually work? (laughs) Yeah, so on a basic level, heat pumps run on condensers and refrigerants, which is actually the same technology that's in refrigerators and air conditioners. If you think about it, refrigerators and air conditioners are technically heat pumps. They move heat from inside the refrigerator or inside your home to the outside, So actually, the only real difference with heat pumps is that heat pumps can go both directions, moving heat in or out of your home. So they're actually not just heaters. They're also coolers. Okay, so they're better for the climate, and they do the job that both my furnace and my air conditioning do. Is there a catch? Well, there are definitely some caveats to think about here. As more people are adopting heat pumps, they're not always installed correctly, and so we have an issue with refrigerant losses. So this is Emily Matram. She's a residential architect in Maine. And she's worried that if we don't manage the refrigerants in heat pumps correctly, we might be swapping out one problem with another problem. Because refrigerants are even worse than carbon dioxide if they get into the atmosphere. Yeah, so that's why Emily says that we should leave it to the professionals to install and maintain heat pumps to make sure that the refrigerants don't leak into the atmosphere. So no gnomes installing your heat pumps. (laughs) Exactly. No gnomes. Hire a professional human being. (laughs) What else to watch out for? Yeah, so Emily and another expert I spoke to, Joe Lieski, they both said that the first thing you should do, even before you replace your heating system, is to get an energy audit to see if your home is weatherized or not. Joe's the Energy Solutions Program Administrator at the New Hampshire Electric Co-op, and he said heating a home that's not weatherized It's kind of like bailing water out of a boat that's got holes in it. But the better solution would be to plug up the holes first and then work on bailing the water. Okay, so weatherize your home first. But my question is, what if my oil or gas furnace still runs fine? Should I spend the money to get a heat pump anyway? I mean, at the end of the day, climate experts are saying we need to be net zero by 2050. And so getting a heat pump, getting an electric vehicle... It's all part of this strategy to electrify everything and get off fossil fuels as soon as possible. But caring about the climate isn't the only reason to get a heat pump. They're usually cheaper to run than any other heating system. And a lot of people think they're just better. They're quieter, they maintain a steadier temperature, and the air quality is better. 
Okay, so there you have it. Heat pumps are better for you and better for the climate. That was producers Jessica Hunt and Felix Poon. And Felix, we actually had a listener call in after this segment aired in New Hampshire asking how cold it can get outside before heat pumps stop working. Do you know, Felix? Yeah, so the experts I spoke to, they said 15 below zero degrees Fahrenheit is just about how low heat pumps can go. How low can they go? (laughs) 15 degrees below zero. (laughs) Uh, They do still work below that, but their outputs start getting really low. Well, next up, we've for our second question, we are bringing in producer Taylor Quimby. And Taylor, what's what's this question? Uh, well, why don't we just hear it? Hi, this is uh, Rebecca from the Bay Area in California, and I'm sitting out here and watched some geese fly overhead, and it made me wonder if the heavy smoke from all of these wildfires in Oregon, California, all through the West, uh, have an impact on migrating birds. Just curious, and hopefully it doesn't. <laughs> You've got to admire her optimism. Um, is it optimism, is it, or is it just hope? <laughs> so to start with, it's worth the noting that wildfire is not automatically a bad thing for birds. Um, some have adapted to living in areas where fire is both normal and a regular part of the ecosystem. So sort of like the non-climate uh, Big West wildfires are, are okay sometimes? Exactly. Uh, for example, there's uh, a bird called the black-backed woodpecker a wee little fellow that lives in the northern U.S. and Canada, and it's adapted to nest in the trunks of burned trees. So in some ways, it kind of needs them. That's so cool. Yeah. Regardless... Regardless, all birds are vulnerable to smoke inhalation. All birds are vulnerable to smoke inhalation. Oh, no. So this is Olivia Sanderfoot, a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Washington School of Environmental and Forest Sciences. She focuses on how air pollution, both from wildfires and urban pollution, affect birds. Now, our understanding of this subject requires that we know a thing or two about bird respiration. So, Justine, as you know, our human lungs expand and contract as we breathe, correct? As I've learned from yoga, yes. Indeed. But... This is not how birds breathe at all. So birds actually have rigid lungs that don't expand or contract. And instead, their respiration is supported by this system of air sacs that constantly pushes fresh air into their lungs. It's like a planted didgeridoo. It's like circular breathing. Yeah, it's unidirectional. So the air sacs are separate from the lungs. Correct. Okay, this is still challenging to imagine, but I think I, I think I have a sense. The takeaway here is that breath for breath, birds are taking in more air and more oxygen than humans, which is great for sustaining physical activity like flight, but also means that they're more vulnerable to toxic gases in the air like carbon monoxide and fine particulate matter, smoke from wildfires, for example, or dust and pollution. So if something in the air is bad for people, chances are it's worse for birds. That phrase, canary in the coal mine, is actually related to this exact phenomenon. So that's like a real thing. If the canary dies, it's like, oh, get out. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. So, so in, in fact, canaries were still used as an early warning signal for carbon monoxide pollution in English coal mines all the way until 1986. Jeez. Okay, so establishing here that birds are definitely vulnerable to smoke, 
How does that affect patterns of migration? Okay, so to try and figure this out, I talked to Annie Yang. She's an assistant professor in the Geography and Environmental Sustainability Departments at the University of Oklahoma. And in the late summer of 2020, she was near Fort Collins, Colorado, and she remembers that wildfires in the West at this point had just gotten really, really bad. I kind of seen like those uh, yellow sky, like the smoke was like everywhere um, during that time period. And uh, that just like <laughs> make me a little bit shocked. Oh, yeah, those yellow skies. We've mm. definitely experienced that here in New Hampshire. And around the same time, there were news reports in the southwestern U.S. about people suddenly finding just tons of dead birds, uh, which is what scientists call a mass mortality event. So she started collecting data from the citizen science platform called iNaturalist. Basically, who's reporting dead birds? How many? Where are they? When were they found? And she was able to cross-reference all those reports with the data from the wildfires and see that there was a clear connection to the smoke at that time. I definitely think that's, you know, the wildfire will impact the health of the birds, drag death, and also it will cause the habitat loss. There's direct impacts like habitat loss and smoke inhalation, but also birds who are using, you know, visual or olfactory cues to be able to do their migration. They, they might not be able to find spots to stop and refuel or they start their migration early. And those things could lead to birds starving to death because basically they don't have the calories they need for the long journey. God, um, well, this is this is just really sad. And sadly, with bigger, hotter fires happening more often because of climate change, it's probably going to get worse. But I will say uh, one way you can help is by contributing to the data pool, since a lot of these studies thus far have relied on crowdsourced citizen science. Sharing your nature observations on an app may feel like small potatoes in the face of wildfires and climate change, but you know, it is an example of collective action. It will really help with uh, pushing forward the research, and also it will get more people being uh, interested in science, which will uh, help to make our planet better. So. Producer Taylor Quimby. Actually, just as we were finishing recording this segment, the U.S. Geological Survey put out a really good study on this exact subject. Researchers were able to track four geese that were actively migrating during the 2020 wildfire season. And they found that on average, the migration took them twice as long and covered hundreds more miles than usual. We really love answering your questions about the natural world. It is so much fun for us. But remember that Outside In is supported by listeners. It is a production of a public radio station. So if you feel like throwing a tip in the tip jar, you can always make a donation. It's easy to do. Just go to our website, outsideinradio.org, and click Donate. We are not done answering listener questions today, and coming up after the break, an old family debate that spans generations about the sounds that bears make in the woods. Sit. 
save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise. For our next listener question, producer Jessica Hunt is back to help one family settle an age-old debate. It's a debate that's been going on for generations. Here's our listener, Ryan. I believe she's calling from the road in New Hampshire. My grandma and my great-aunt used to argue over a hooting sound that we'd hear in the woods. It kind of sounded like, But sometimes there'd be a response back uh, that sounded a little different. And they used to argue if it was an owl or a bear. And this would go on for hours. So I'm just wondering if you can tell us, do bears hoot in New Hampshire and Vermont? Thank you. I love a good family debate. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the the classic the classic bears hooting question. It's very funny. It's been going on for for decades. This is Dave Mance the third. He's a New England nature writer and editor who answered basically this same question back in 2008. And he says that this hooting bear thing is not new. Here is New Hampshire fish and game bear biologist Andy Timmons. For whatever reason, there is kind of this folklore myth in New England that bears who. It's very common. I hear it multiple times a year. I get asked that question. I wanted to double check that this really is a regional thing. So I also reached out to David Telesco, Bear Management Program Coordinator with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. The idea that a bear would hoot, it's an, that's an odd perception. I've never heard of this before today. New one on me. So he's in Florida. He's never heard of this. This might be a New Hampshire and Vermont folklore thing? Yes. And just to be clear, all of the bear experts that Dave talked to and that I spoke with for this question say the same thing. Bears don't hoot. The answer is no. Bears do not hoot. So why the controversy? Because, you know, the way that it seems pretty clear that the sound Ryan, our listener, is hearing um, is the classic barred owl sound. Well, that was a universal conclusion. And uh, New Hampshire's bear biologist, Andy Timmons, he does a really good one. That is indeed the, the call of the barred owl. Dave Mance. I think the tell is, is right in the word that they're using, that, that it's a, it sounds like a hoot. Well, you know, owl's hoot. <laughs> it's the, it's the uh, what is it, Occam's razor, where, you know, the simplest solution is, is usually the correct one. And sure enough, if it's a hoot, it's an owl. Like what, what kind of noises do bears typically make, like if I came upon one while I was hiking in the woods or something? Here's David Telesco. I mean, you know, honestly, it is really rare to see a wild black bear um, in the forest because they like thick, thick cover. Uh, they don't like us, um, and they could smell us for over a mile away. So as we're approaching, they're likely either gone or hunkered down. But if you do come across a bear and you surprise them, what they might do is they might you know, huff and and pop their jaws, basically. And that's that's as much as they would do. You know, there's not a bunch of, you know, the Hollywood growling and things like that. 
Everyone I spoke with emphasized that black bears are not social, so they don't need to make a lot of noise. It's not how they communicate. They have the best sense of smell of any land mammals. Uh, I think it's seven times better than a bloodhound, which is supposed to be 300 times better than a person. So a lot of their communication is scent. They they will huff at each other sometimes, um, but there's not there's really not much vocalization. Okay, so the, the consensus here is bears do not hoot. So we've answered Ryan's question, solved her family dispute, and given her family some peace, right? Did we answer the question? Yes, bears do not hoot. But did we end the debate? I doubt it. I mean, what's more fun than sitting around the campfire talking about whether that hoot you just heard was an owl or a bear? That was producer Jessica Hunt. Thank you. My pleasure. Always up for talking about bears. And now joining me again to answer our last listener question is producer Felix Poon. Hey, Justine. So what's our last question? This question comes from Rich in Deerfield, Massachusetts, and it is about agroforestry. I know that Project Drawdown lists agroforestry as one of their top solutions to climate. I was wondering what is the potential for agroforestry here in New England? Are there traditional practices that we could revive? Are there people out there doing cool and interesting things in agroforestry? Wait, what is agroforestry? Great question. Agroforestry can mean a lot of different things, but the definition we like to use is that it's the intentional integration of trees and shrubs into crop and animal farming systems to create environmental, economic, and social benefits. This is Kate McFarland. She works with the National Agroforestry Center, which is run by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And when you integrate trees and shrubs and farmland, there can be a lot of benefits. Like, for instance, trees provide shade to both plants and livestock. Trees also create microclimates, so it tends to be cooler and more humid under their canopy. And having more elements to your farm, by definition, creates more diversity. Right. So instead of having a monoculture, you've got several different plants and it makes uh, some habitat. Yeah. And in theory, that kind of mimics the forest. It is one of the oldest land use practices. This is Megan Giroux. She's a farmer and the director of Interlace Commons, an agroforestry research and outreach organization. And she's based in Vermont. So when people say, oh, you're, you're looking to implement these innovative land use practices, I say, no, <laughs> the indigenous have been practicing these for thousands of years. We might think of agroforestry mostly happening in the tropics, like think about coffee. That's a bean that comes from a tree which grows in the shade. But I asked Megan what agroforestry can look like in practice in this region. At Interlay's Agroforestry Farm, we're implementing both ancient and modern forms of agroforestry. So in describing one lane, we have a tree called Tilia cordata. Tilia cordata's common name is Little Leaf Linden. Little Leaf Linden. That sounds like it should be like a a jazzy blues song or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So at Megan's farm, they prune these trees using a technique called pollarding, which essentially creates a scaffold of new branches, like a flush of new growth, almost like a grape trellis. So imagine grapes growing on a living tree trellis with sheep grazing underneath. So we're combining three crops 
in one land unit. I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer. So I imagine lots of people are practicing this in New England. Across the country, only one, one and a half percent of farms say that they use agroforestry techniques. In New England, the rates are a bit higher, and Vermont is number one at 7%. 7%. I mean, that's low, but it's kind of higher than I thought it would be. Either way, to answer our listener's question, in this region, there's a lot of room for growth and a lot of potential. New England is already a forested landscape, so growing trees and shrubs is kind of a natural thing in a way. And maybe farmers can shift some of the practices they're already doing, like grazing to silvopasture, which is grazing livestock under trees, or planting a riparian buffer, essentially trees and shrubs growing along a stream. But maybe you're planting them with fruit trees or nut trees or shrubs, so you're able to get some income from that riparian buffer as well. And there are things you can do even if you just have a backyard, like Kate does. I have mushroom logs in my backyard and uh, a lot of fruit trees and berry bushes, which I'm pretty excited about. It's really fun to experiment at home. Backyard agroforestry. I want to give it a go now. This has been Outside in Box. Special thanks to everybody who has written or called in, left us feedback, notes, and questions. If you have a question about the natural world or just thoughts you'd like to share about the show, you too can call our hotline. It is 1-844-GO-OTTER. You can also send a voice memo to our email, and that is at outsidein at nhpr.org. This episode of Outside In was produced by Felix Poon, Jessica Hunt, Taylor Quimby, and me, Justine Paradise. It was mixed by Felix Poon and edited by Taylor Quimby, with additional editing help from Corey Princell. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 